Welcome to News and Brews. I'm Mike Heslin. This is a special episode about Roe v. Wade, but the episode itself might feel a bit more like inflation. That's because you are getting less for your money than usual. Uh, one host talking about just one story this week. Errol's out, and uh, we would normally just postpone this week's conversation, but then the draft Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe leaked, and it feels maybe important, definitely cathartic, to share some thoughts while it's in the news. So this week it's just me, and I'm only talking about one story. All right, let's talk about the news. On Monday night, Politico published a leaked draft of the majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, the case to decide the constitutionality of a 2018 Mississippi law that banned abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Initially, the case was seen as an effort to chip away at the 1973 and 1992 precedents set by Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which protect access to abortion across the country. You hear that metaphor a lot, uh, chipping away at individual freedoms like they're an ice sculpture or something, but it would have uh, initially allowed just this law to degrade the protection from 24 weeks into pregnancy to 15 weeks for an abortion. Uh, But after Amy Coney Barrett replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court, the plaintiff, which has a name that is way more Orwellian than it should be these days, uh, the Mississippi State Department of Health, uh, they changed the question they're asking in the case from, is this law constitutional, to, are any and all restrictions on abortion constitutional. During oral arguments in December, it became clear that many of the court's conservative majority wanted to take a uh, fuck it, let's be legends approach and use this case to cancel Roe and its associated precedents altogether. Enter the leaked draft decision. This is not an allowance of the law to take hold uh, without comment, as the Supreme Court did with Texas's ban starting at six weeks of pregnancy. It's not a narrow ruling based on some idiosyncrasy of this law that doesn't apply more broadly. This decision, in draft form still, focuses largely on the precedents set by Roe and Casey and, importantly, on their legal underpinnings. So I'm not going to do a full breakdown of the decision. It's 98 pages, and there are people much more qualified than me who've already done it well. Uh, I'll point you to a couple. So the Strict Scrutiny podcast had a good episode on this, breaking it down, that was promoted in the Pod Save America feed. Uh, The Post also put out a really helpful kind of page-by-page annotated breakdown. Uh, I'll link those in the show notes. But what I will do now is share one key passage from Alito's draft decision and try to put some context around the argument he's making. The draft decision says, quote, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the due process clause of the 14th amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the constitution, but any such right must be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, end quote. The draft decision from Alito specifically seeks to undermine a line of argument and a concept in American jurisprudence called substantive due process. The Constitution, for its part, twice mentions due process. The Fifth Amendment in the Bill of Rights says some pretty important things like you can't be tried without a grand jury, you can't be tried for the same crime twice, you can't be compelled to testify against yourself, right, taking the fifth, uh, and the government can't take your property without paying a fair rate for it. It also says quote, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, end quote. So that's saying if we're going to restrict your freedom for for criminal justice reasons, we will follow proper procedures. 
Then the 14th Amendment, which is a big one, it makes everyone born or naturalized in the U.S. a citizen. It includes the Equal Protection Clause. It undoes the Three-Fifths Compromise from the Constitution. Uh, it, it importantly bars any elected representative who is engaged in rebellion against the United States from holding office going forward. <coughs> oh, excuse me, Marjorie Taylor Greene, excuse me. <coughs> but in addition to all that stuff, it includes this due process clause. Quote, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, end quote. So you have due process relating to criminal procedures in the Fifth Amendment, and then you have the 14th Amendment extending it to states, right, saying that state governments are beholden to this just as the federal government is, and coupling it with this broader line about abridging citizens' privileges or immunities. Out of these two lines in two amendments grows this jurisprudence around substantive due process. So starting in the early 20th century, a long line of jurists developed the idea that distinct from procedural due process, right, Fifth Amendment due process, where you get a jury trial and sufficient notice to appear in court and impartial judge and things like that, the Constitution also guarantees substantive due process, meaning individuals are protected from a legislative majority enacting policies that exceed the government's authority, even for rights that aren't explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, but are fundamental enough to be considered life, liberty, and property. The Republicans on the Supreme Court, most fervently Clarence Thomas, reject this whole concept. Core to being a textualist or an originalist, which is are the, the euphemisms movement conservatism uses for its legal wing, is rejecting anything that is not spelled out explicitly in the Constitution, which it should be noted was written 233 years ago. Uh, the problem with this is, I mean, basically the entire philosophy, uh, but one specific problem with this is that you have to go beyond the Constitution to extend freedoms to anyone. Civil rights, the right to marry someone of a different race or the same gender as yourself, the right to contraception, all of this rests on the idea of substantive due process. You can see that it's necessary to go beyond the Constitution to protect rights because Alito does that in his own argument. The main standard he uses for when a right can be guaranteed, right, that it be deeply rooted in the nation's history, is not in fact mentioned anywhere in the Constitution. It is also wrong to say that abortion is not a deeply rooted right. In the Victorian era, uh, abortion services were widely advertised on both sides of the Atlantic, and it's estimated that between 20 and 25% of pregnancies in the U.S. in the middle of the 19th century ended in abortion. What changed over time is the technology to abort pregnancies safely. It was only about the year 1930 when abortion methods became safer than childbirth. And then 43 years after that, you have the right constitutionally protected in Roe. 49 years after that, they're saying it's not deeply rooted in history. Go figure. Uh, there's a great Twitter thread that I'll post in the show notes from Adam Winkler, a constitutional law professor at UCLA, uh, which also notes that Alito's argument is circular. If the rights that are protected under substantive due process were deeply rooted in history, we wouldn't need to have a conversation about them now. Winkler also points out, importantly, that while Alito takes pains in the decision to say that he is not seeking to set a precedent relating to other unenumerated rights, right, like interracial and gay marriage, sexual intimacy, contraception, there is nothing about his arguments that cannot be extended to these rights too. And when it comes to Supreme Court precedents, things that logically follow from a decision are really important. All to say, it's been a tough week. 
I can't imagine what it's like to be a woman in America this week. Um, you know, whether you personally believe in abortion for yourself or not, uh, to have the federal government on the cusp of clawing back control over individual women's bodies away from their own individual sovereignty is absolutely chilling. And all the more so because of all the other hard won freedoms it puts at risk. Ultimately, we've heard it before, but this is the, the week Donald Trump became president. Uh, the gamble that Mitch McConnell and movement conservatives made was that Trump might be a clown and do a bunch of stuff we don't like, but he will put judges on the court who will overturn Roe. And now fully one third of the court, three of the five votes needed for a majority have been appointed specifically to make this decision, much to the delight of a former president who appointed them, a man who, as we all know, deep down when we're really honest with ourselves, has almost certainly sought numerous abortions in his personal life. This is the guy who just set us back 30 to 50 years on the expansion of individual freedom that has defined our formation of a more perfect union across the generations of American history. That's all I've got for today. Thanks for listening. This episode of News and Brews was hosted by Mike Heslin. Our producer is Alana Nevins. This episode was recorded Friday, May 6th, 2022 at 2 p.m. Look out for new episodes available each Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. This episode of News and Brews was hosted by Mike Heslin. Our producer is Alana Nevins. This episode was recorded Wednesday. Nope. Back up. Wrong day.